Hello, I'm David McGowan, and welcome to Untold Stories. This episode was recorded live on stage at the Florida Theater in downtown Jacksonville on February 12th, 2022. And this audio series is a production of WJCT Public Media and the Florida Theater. Untold Stories at the Florida Theater is made possible in part by generous support from the Wolfrook family. First up is Brent and Brent Bird. And um, come on out. Thank you.
Thank you. Wrong Way Road. Thank you. Woo. So next up is True Poet. And he's part of the incredible Slam Duval poetry team. He's originally from Central Florida, and he is a published author of, a, of Chapuk, Give Him Flowers. Their work is centered in mental health awareness and acceptance for the LGBTQ and BIPOC, BIPOC community. And welcome, True. The first breath I took once I was able to breathe again was not easy. It was heavy, shaky, nervous. I took my time exhaling, releasing the hurt and trauma that weighed me down like cinder blocks. My muscles relaxed, almost thanking me for easing the tension. The breeze at Memorial Park hugged me like it knew what this breath meant to me. I had been holding my breath since I was about eight years old. That was around the time my uncle introduced me to his imaginary world that required a lot more than just imagination to survive. To him, what he was doing wasn't complicated. He just needed an excuse to pick me up, and for a couple hours, my body no longer belonged to me. He threw dirt on my innocence and made it muddy and mucky like a swamp with quicksand at the bottom, and I was being swallowed into the hands of a man I trusted a man enthralled by his own perverted fantasies. This lasted for about five years. I grew into my teens juggling school, extracurricular, a social life, and getting molested at least once a week. I had gotten really good at it, too. I was great at making sure nobody got close enough to know what was going on and fantastic at distracting the ones who asked too many questions. I'm sure you're asking why. Why torture myself by keeping the secret? Why push away the people that maybe could have offered me an escape? One answer, I was a confused kid. Threats and trauma had clouded my judgment. I had inhaled gallons of filthy water from this proverbial swamp, and I was spending so much time trying to figure out how to breathe, trying to survive his imaginary world that I forgot that maybe there was a way out. Or maybe the way out was just as dangerous as what I was going through. Somehow I knew that telling my parents wasn't going to make the situation any better. I was 13 now and had already come out of the closet twice, so let's just say they didn't take big news gracefully. So why tell them that for the last five years I was getting raped by my uncle and keeping it a secret? And it's not just that I was scared that they wouldn't take it well. I was ashamed. I felt dirty, tainted, and undeserving. I didn't want people to look at me differently or have outsiders interject into what I was living through every day. It had gotten so easy for him at this point. At first, it was every couple months, rare moments where I was just at the wrong place at the wrong time, but five years later, and he was picking me up and dropping me off from school almost every day. He would tell my mother that he had computer problems only I could help with. We even took overnight trips to the beach. He would ask me if I had fun, if I liked it. I think he thought that if I would have said yes, it would have somehow made everything better. One day, he picked me up from school and took me to his house. He was a creature of habit, so this wasn't a surprise. The only difference that day was me. At school, we had learned about the power of self-advocacy, how if you want to see a change in the world, you have to be a part of the change. We were asked to create t-shirts that advocated for something we believe in. I grabbed a giant black sharpie and wrote the words, rape is ape, have you evolved on a t-shirt? I was so proud of myself. I felt that for a second, maybe I was strong enough to get myself out of my own situation. When I brought the t-shirt over to my teacher to show her what I had done, with a big smile on my face, her eyes opened wide and her jaw dropped. She snatched the shirt out of my hand and hid it under her desk. She told me that this was an inappropriate topic for school and that she couldn't allow me to walk around in that shirt. 
She silenced me. By the time my uncle picked me up, I was livid. I was itching for a release. We got to his house and I sat on the couch and he began touching me the usual, except this time I was not numb. I wasn't disassociating. After five years, I had a routine for this. I had mastered the art of just being a body, but this time I felt everything. His breath hovering over my face, his hands undressing me, sweat dripping onto my skin, him finishing. I was there for everything that time. I got dressed and went to the car once we were done to wait for him. I sat in the deafening silence for six minutes, reliving the last 20. He opened the driver's side door, sat down, and started the car, but before he could pull out of the parking lot, I turned to him and did something I had never imagined myself doing. I told him that I was done, that I didn't care if he hurt me or killed my parents like he had threatened, that I just wanted to be left alone. So I promised him my silence, and we drove the rest of the way without saying a word. A month later, I heard that he had moved to Texas. It worked. I was free of him, or at least I thought I was. My body didn't feel any lighter. It's like I knew that he could no longer put his hands on my body, but I still felt his hands on my soul. He had imprinted himself on me. The psychological warfare that he had used would continue to damage me as I transitioned into my adulthood. I was reckless with my body. I became a playground for men who did not like to follow the rules. I was going nowhere. I was 21, dropped out of college twice, jumping from job to job, living in my car in Orlando, which is a city so easy to get lost in. I never told anyone about my uncle, not to family, not to friends, not to therapists that I had collected like trophies along the years. I thought that if I just never said anything, I'd never have to deal with him. But one evening, a notification pops up on my phone. I freeze as I see it's a Facebook message from my uncle. It casually read, Hey, nephew, how you been? You look great. Those words echoed in my mind as my world imploded. The air in my 2009 Ford Fusion escaped through every crack. I felt helpless. I was scared. He was stuck on me like a stain. I never replied. I couldn't reply. It's like I knew that I was still stuck with him. So I just never said anything, and I realized in that moment just how much power he still had over me and how delusional I had been this whole time. To think that I could have just trapped him in my memories and it would somehow make him disappear, but I hadn't done the work that I needed to do to get through what he had done to me. I just escaped it. I wasn't living, I was barely surviving. I knew I desperately needed a change. It's like I wanted to shed my skin and become someone else, but of course that's impossible, so I did the next best thing. Everything I owned already fit in my car, so why not move to a city where I don't know anyone on my own with $500 to my name? What did I have to lose? I don't know exactly how I landed up on moving to Jacksonville, though. Whether it was suggestions from the universe or what I thought was going to be cheap rent, but... By the time the sun was up, I was packed and ready to go. <laughs> that was the most emotional car ride of my life. I called my parents thinking that maybe they were going to convince me to turn around, but instead my mother left me with one thought that would permeate through my whole body. She told me, son, you got to find your beacon of strength. Fortify yourself, find your foundation. And I made that my mission. When I got to Jacksonville, I pulled up to what I know now as Memorial Park. The sun was resting on the horizon. The glow was warm and full of light. The trees were happy, dancing in the wind. It's like I was being welcomed. 
I followed the sun like a tour guide until I found myself staring at the most beautiful angel floating above a sphere of swirling waters. In that moment, I felt myself above the swamp, taking my first breath. Like I said at the beginning, that first breath was shaky at best, but it was strong enough for me to start a new life, a life where I wasn't scared and I wasn't tainted, a life where my voice was powerful. I started using my voice to speak up for the hurt little boy that lived inside of me. I was approached by the Women's Center of Jacksonville to read a poem at an event that they were hosting for survivors called Surviving to Thriving. I took that as an opportunity to share my story, mainly because you don't see a lot of male survivors speaking up. But I never knew how powerful I would feel by doing that. Eventually, I was able to use my newfound voice to tell my parents that I was raped by my uncle and the damage that it had done to me. But I was also able to tell them that I was healing, to tell my mother that I had accomplished her mission, that I became the beacon of strength. My parents embraced me. They made that hurt little boy feel safe and loved. And all I could think about was that angel at Memorial Park and how it just floated above the turbulent waters. And I finally knew peace. Thank you. Thank you, True. Years ago, I had the opportunity um, to research Nina Kummer's uh, life in the archives and um, write a play for the 50th anniversary of the Kummer Museum and um, read a lot about Nina's mission to um, have Memorial Park and it to be a respite for veterans that were coming home from the war. And there were several times that there was, it was threatened that that park would be um, demolished and to have some building or to be put there. And she, you know, she would get on the phones and said, that can't happen. We can never let that happen. Um, next up is Erica Saffer. Erica is an educator in Duval County Public Schools. She's a published author and a literary advocate. She's very involved with uh, Women Writing for a Change, uh, My, MySpace Babs Lab, and Jacks by Jacks. And she's currently working on her debut novel, Love and Loss on the Lido Deck. Please welcome Erica Saffer. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. The Seminole tribe named Wikiwachi Springs, and it's translated to mean winding rivers. It's the perfect name to encapsulate the beauty and the essence of wild Florida. Large trees overhang crystal clear water, buffered by mangroves, all supported by a pristine, white sand bottom. It's heaven on earth, but to my grandparents, it was the backdrop for their summer of love. They were both college students at Florida State University looking for summer work, and they found it at Wikiwachi. My grandmother, tall, sinewy, her beautiful face, no doubt delighted the crowds as she was one of their mermaids in the underwater swimming shows. Yeah. My grandfather worked the hoses that kept her alive. <laughs> they were young, beautiful, and they fell deeply and madly in love that summer. When they returned to school in the fall, they were met with a casting offer to be cast in a little-known film, uh, a bit of a cult classic, named The Creature from the Black Lagoon. <laughs> so you see, in essence, my origin story is quite literally out of the swamp. <laughs> so it's only natural that my upbringing would be along the banks of the Julington Creek River in Mandarin, Florida. 
Tall oak trees with their swaying moss tendrils stood sentinel over me and my friends over long summers where we would eat citrus warm and juicy off of trees. We would slather our bodies with baby oil and worship the sun on our friends' docks. We would take these running leaps off of Mandarin Dock and if you jumped out far enough, you wouldn't get stuck in the sludge that is the St. John's River. <laughs> we used to call the St. John's River Jacksonville mystery water mm -hmm. because you never really knew what was swimming beside you and you never really knew what was swimming underneath you, but we really didn't even care. To us, it was just fun. And plus, our logic was, we had never personally known anybody that had been attacked by an alligator, so we were good, right? <laughs> it was on one of these beautiful summer days that I met Nordell. Wild Florida embodied in this 6'2 man with curly tendrils cascading down his face, this these chocolate brown eyes that turned honey when he smiled. A smile that would crinkle up his entire face, a laugh so thunderous it made you want to laugh too. An arm so big, so strong, that they gave the best hugs, usually right before he threw you in the water. <laughs> I fell in love instantly. I was 17. For my 18th birthday, he bought me a big green canoe. I still have that canoe. It sits in the side yard of, of my house, and every time my sons take it out, I smile. I think about all of the adventures that we had in that canoe. He taught me how to fish in that canoe. He taught me how to not be afraid of baiting my own hook. He would take me to places in Florida that I had never seen before, like guana where we would literally canoe over tops of alligators like it was no big deal. <laughs> One day we were taking a break from paddling and we were up in the lily pads and I had my hand in the water. I was on one side of the canoe and he was on the other. Our legs were entangled and we were looking up at an aqua sky. And then I felt a disturbance in the water. And we looked over and all of the water around us was broiling, these humongous boulders raising from underneath us, rubbing against the boat, knocking us side to side, our vessel almost capsizing manatees. <laughs> A family of manatees coming to eat the swamp cabbage. I had never seen anything like that before, and I have never seen anything like that since. I've never seen anything like him either. It was on one of our midnight adventures, one of our long drives into the woods to drink beer on the back of his tailgate and look up at the stars and dream, that he gave me my most cherished gift. My son, Rivers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was 19, mm-hmm. Yeah, so being a, a mother at 19 is interesting. Uh, for one thing, like you're literally a kid with a kid. So fun follows you everywhere you go. Um, having rivers never really stopped us. It was like throwing kerosene on a fire. We took him everywhere. I remember sitting with him on my lap in the canoe and I would take his little hand in mine and plunge it into the water ripples catching glints of sunshine. We would push our hands deep into the muddy water until our fingers began to disappear, and then we'd pull them back. <laughs> we'd take him to the beach, and this kid loved screaming seagulls into flight. He would chase after them, and he would yell this, this rebel yell of a tiny fighter. <sighs> His nickname was Wild Man back then. And the name was incredibly fitting because on every single report card that we have from that time, it reads as follows. Rivers is a strong-willed child. 
<laughs> and it was true. We were wild and we were free. But sometimes that's not always so much fun. We struggled. I remember having to create concoctions that were edible from ingredients from the dollar store. I remember having to pretend like we were going indoor camping when our power got cut off for non-payment. We were young, Nordell and I. We didn't know what we were doing in life. We didn't know what we were doing as parents. And the pressure of the world kept coming in at us and we just weren't prepared. So we grew apart and we ended up splitting. And it became me and Rivers and his brother. And I needed to figure out a way of how I was gonna provide for them. How was I gonna give them the things that they needed? So I went back to school and I got my teaching degree. And uh, I went to school full time and I worked two jobs and I volunteered at their schools. And, and over time I graduated. And I'll never forget upon graduation, Rivers came running up to me and he gave me this big hug and he looked up at me and he was so proud. And I was proud too. Teaching had given us stability. It had given me the opportunity to not only give my kids what they needed, but what they wanted. <laughs> we didn't have to eat canned meat anymore. They got to go to sports practices. All of these markers of things that I attributed to great wealth, like dental insurance, <laughs> we had. And over the past decade, I haven't relented. I haven't stopped working. I went back to school and I got my MFA. My teaching career is going pretty well. I became a published author. I'm an advocate. I've given back to my community. All of this so that I could show my sons that hard work really does pay off. But mostly because I've just wanted to see them happy. All I've ever wanted to do was see them happy. But through all of this effort and this time and this hard work, I wasn't watching the clock wind down as Rivers was gearing up. He's 17 now. He's on the cusp of adulthood. He is the exact age now that I was when I met his dad. Only a year and like a freckle from when I was pregnant with him and that fact scares the muddy water right out of me. <laughs> you know, he was standing in my kitchen the other day. He came through and he had the hood of his jacket over his head. And he was trying to scurry by me so that I wouldn't see. And of course I noticed. And I said, what you got underneath that hood? And then I saw it. He looked up and he peered and had this smile that scrunched up his face, his father's smile. But I noticed his hairline was different. So it's important to note that over the past year, Rivers has been growing out this brilliant, fantastic, majestic, glorious mullet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was not too thrilled uh, when, when this whole idea began. Um, but, you know, I grew to love it because he loved it and I love him. And that's just how that happened. So he takes his hood off and he reveals this fresh new crew cut that he had paid for from money that he got from a job that he works at hard. That kid has a stronger work ethic than me, and that's saying a lot. It was in that moment that I felt a shift. You know, we, we had to be kids together, and that was incredible, but we're turning a corner now, and we get to be adults together, and I worry. 
I worry if he has the things that he's going to need to succeed. I worry if I'm, I've equipped him enough. I, I worry about the intersection of, of mother and friend and peer and where that's going to lead us. I, I worry that I'm going to lose sight of that little boy whose hand I would hold on long walks to the creek after days at school and work, me carrying his Snoopy fishing pole and him carrying my heart. But you know what? Maybe I've got it wrong. Maybe I don't need to worry so much. Da Vinci is quoted as saying that in rivers, when you put your hand in, it's the moment that that moment is gone, never to return again, but it's also the exact moment of promise of things to come. I recognize that my relationship with my son is shifting and it's changing. And, you know, maybe I need to take a page from his playbook. Maybe I need to be a little bit more bold, a little bit more brave, a little bit more strong-willed, just enough so that I can relax a little and enjoy where this winding river will take us. Thank you. Thank you, this lovely. Erica Saffer. Next up, last but not least, David Gerard. So David Gerard is the consummate film actor, stage actor. He's a playwright. He was the co-founder of Grio 3 with Val Letson and Larry Knight. He's open for Nikki Giovanni. And um, Grio, uh, he who speaks the sweet world, word, was accepted into the International Fringe Festival. I was lucky I got direct to direct that show. Um, he recently played Thurgood Marshall in Thurgood at um, Theater Jacksonville. And he was at, uh, did guess who's, um, I'm sorry, guess who's coming to dinner. So he's constantly working on his craft. And I am really thrilled that he is here tonight to share his story of Out of the Swamp. David Gerard. During the PM era, pre-mask, <laughs> I was at my evil grandmother's house one day. And she gifted me with some sage wisdom. She said, ain't nothing wrong with having favorites. Every parent has favorites. <laughs> and she said this to me right after I told her about how rotten her son had treated me and my mother. My brother was his favorite but he wasn't always exempt from my father's raft. Now, whilst she is telling me this, my father is in his bedroom, letting his thoughts out of his head. What you doing here? Boy, you better get out of here. Now, I don't know if he was talking to me, and I really didn't get upset because karma, justice, the reckoning, whatever you want to call it, had visited him 10 years prior. He was blessed with three strokes that left him without the use of the left side of his body. And now my evil grandmother was forced to take care of him. You see, karma is not without a sense of humor. <laughs> now this evil woman, okay, context. This evil woman never wore a bra, okay? <laughs> And she had the largest mammaries you've ever seen. <laughs> and she would wear these long flowing house dresses. And those mammaries would move up under the dress like an extra set of arms. Traumatized me as a child. <laughs> then this evil woman says to me, I want to give you your daddy's house. 
Now these words wash over me like dirty bath water, and I feel this, this feel, to this day I can't explain that feeling. You see, this house that was to be given to me was a point of contention in my family. When my father walked out on us, he moved himself and his new girlfriend into that house. That house that we built, that house that sat on land that was paid for by my mother. Now, this house was to be given to me, and this snuff-dipping, large-memoried woman was facilitating the deal. (laughs) Irony also is not without a sense of humor. Me and my girlfriend, who's now my wife, we had a little apartment in San Marco. And the house was in Callahan, about 10 miles northwest of the airport. Now, Callahan used to be a sundown town, and I don't know if you know what a sundown town, but a sundown town is a town where if you were black and the sun went down, you should probably make an effort to leave as quickly as possible. Now, my girlfriend, who's now my wife, she was a graphic designer and an optimist, and I'm not sure you're supposed to be both. (laughs) So I take her to see the house for the first time. So we ride past all the Confederate flags and the meth labs. (laughs) And we pull into the driveway, we get out of the car, and we enter the seventh level of hell. And she looks around. Babe, this is such a great space. It has so much potential. It's going to be awesome. Plus, it's a free house. And we would soon learn that free ain't free. We had a really hard time hanging pictures in shelves because the studs weren't evenly separated. Some were 12 inches apart, some were 16 inches apart, and some were somewhere in the middle. We had an electrician come out, and he pulled off a panel, and he was like, well, hell, I don't think I've ever seen it done that way before. Our biggest issue was water. So our first well pump wouldn't hold pressure. So sometimes the water would just cut off to the house. The septic tank would overflow at least once a year. And if you've ever had a septic tank overflow, good God, the the stench would knock a giant to its knees. When it rained, it seemed like the land would just pull the water closer to the house. You needed waiters to walk in the yard. But my Jesus moment came in the middle of the night. I heard this voice say, David, get up. And I usually don't listen to voices like that because they sound strangely like my own. But this night I got up. And so I heard a gushing noise. And so I went toward the noise, which is something I usually don't do either because I've seen what happens to black men in scary movies when they go toward the noise. (laughs) So (laughs) I go toward the noise and I get halfway across my great room and water is splashing up on my legs. So I make it to the kitchen where I hear the noise and I open the cabinet and the water just starts splashing me in my face. It was like a cartoon. You know, the one where Bugs Bunny is holding the holes and and the water's in Elmer Fudd's face? Yeah, that was me. And so I run out of the kitchen and I run to the garage and I cut off the water and I run back in and my dining room is a wade pool. My kitchen is a wade pool and I fall down to my knees. God, why hast thou forsaken me? (laughs) A couple of years after that, I walk by in the house and I see a pool of water. And so I don't think anything of it. I think some disrespecting kid who lives in my house was too lazy to clean it up. So I wipe it up, throw the the towel away, and when I come back, the pool is there again. And now I'm convinced this house is trying to baptize me. (laughs) Having never been baptized, I just figured that there was this hole in the space-time continuum that was trying to correct itself. But it wasn't a slab leak. 
the geniuses who laid the towel didn't put a moisture barrier down. So now, every once in a while, we see a pool of water reminding us that we need to repent for our sins. <laughs> we got the roof replaced, and then the roof started leaking. <laughs> Usually, it's the other way around. And that was the brick that broke the window. Me and my wife looked at each other and was like, it is imperative that we move out of the swamp. <laughs> Thing is, when we got that house, we were so proud. We had an asset, just one, but we had one. And I remember we would throw parties and my friends would take the table out of the kitchen or whatever so they could turn the kitchen into a nightclub. I remember looking out of the window and smiling from ear to ear, watching my children run across the acre of land that we owned. I remember riding my riding lawnmower, waving to my Confederate flag-waving neighbors. <laughs> I remember taking that long drive from the city, and as soon as I hit Lim Turner, I could feel the city melt away. The years added inches to my kids and my point of reflection became sharper and it occurred to me, we became a family in that house. We became a unit in that house. We took care of my father-in-law for eight years until he passed and he passed in that house. I remember it was my wedding reception and my good grandmother was there. I had an evil grandmother and I had a good grandmother. <laughs> and all my friends were being so nice to my grandmother. I mean, they were asking her if she needed anything. They were very accommodating and they were calling her Ma and Grandma. And I went to walk past her and she said, baby, ma'am, come here. Ma'am, you know, I done went from working in white people's kitchen to now they calling me ma and grandma. Thank you, baby. Thank you. And that happened in that house. We're building a new house now in Springfield. And I went to walk the land that it was being built on, and it's dry. <laughs> and we're not disillusioned, okay? We know the new house will have problems, you know. They just won't be the same problems. We won't have to worry about the septic tank or the well pump. And uh, I'm kind of saddened by this. You see, swamps aren't inherently bad. And if it had not been for my baptism in the swamp, my life might not be what it is. Thank you. David Gerard. So here we are. And... There we go. So much. You know, when we, when we first um, came up with this, this theme, Out of the Swamp, I immediately thought of the lotus flower and wondered if anybody would use that um, metaphor, the idea that the lotus flower comes out of the mud. And... Um, I, I, no one, you know, working with all the storytellers, no one ever brought it up. So I, I've been researching lotus flowers and I, they're so amazing because they come out of the mud and they're beautiful. They have no mud on them. And then they, every night they go back into the mud and then come back out and they're perfect. And I wish children were like that, right? You know, like... And I'm thinking, why don't scientists like figure out what like the lotus is doing? Because this is like amazing, and it has this like waxy um, covering over it, and the leaves protect it. 
I just, I just think that we, you know, we got to do something about that. Well, let's not exploit the lotus flower. Let it be. We are now going to end the evening with a beautiful song by Brent Bird, Shine a Light. And here we go, Brent Bird. Thank you. Well, thank you all so much. It's been a pleasure. Everybody, the storytellers were completely amazing and I'm, I'm just I'm really happy to be a part of this so I just want to thank you all sometimes uh, you know in life we just need a little light so Thank you. Hey, you guys can find me on, uh, you can find me on Amazon, you can find me online, anywhere. If you have Alexa, just ask her to play Brent Bird music, and she will. Thank you. And that's it. <laughs> so come on out, storytellers. Brent, here's your cast for the evening out of the swamp. Minus Ebony. Okay, guys. <laughs> Woo. Thank you to our sound. 
Thank you all. The storytellers will be out, come out, and, and if you want to talk to anybody, they'll be coming down your way. Come back to the next one. Thank you for being here. Untold Stories at the Florida Theater is made possible in part by generous support from the Wolfberg family. This audio series is a production of WJCT Public Media and the Florida Theater.